Good morning. Welcome to worship once again. So for those of you who are joining us, who are visiting with us, you're catching us midstream through our sizzling summer sermon series here at Second. We have been preaching through some of Paul's letters, and we have come to the point where we're um, in the midst of his longest letter, his letter to the Romans. And I think every week I miss how many, how, where we are in this. This is the third or fourth sermon on Paul's letter to the Romans. And we find ourselves in the sixth chapter, words that might be familiar to you. You might have heard these words in another context here at church. I'll quiz you on that as we move along later in the sermon. But these are some of the most powerful words that Paul shares with Christians in Rome. Some of the most powerful words that we hear in our lives today. So open your ears to God's word this morning. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Paul knew exactly what he was doing and saying with every word that he dictated to his scribe. There's not a wasted word in this passage that we have this morning. Paul was no dummy. Talking about the Apostle Paul and his background is really important in understanding, I think, some of the context and the depth and the meaning of this passage, as well as everything else he wrote. But it's important to know that this letter was written in Greek. And that might not seem to be odd at all until you think that this letter is being sent from Corinth over to Rome. And you say, well, why didn't he send it in Latin, right? Well, you know, it's interesting when you do the history of ancient Rome, it was a bilingual culture. And just as the Romans had adopted so much from Greek culture, theater, religion, remember Mars turns into Aries or the other way around, and Jupiter and Zeus and all that, you know. The Romans were copycats of Greek culture. And generally speaking, it was a bilingual culture where Romans spoke in Koine Greek, common Greek, the Greek of the Bible. So it's not unusual, though it might seem that, that Paul is writing in a different language than in Latin. 
But that's the way it was. Paul, and that's, that's also important because Paul thinks on many levels. He's Jewish. He had been trained under a famous scholar, Gamaliel, raised in this city of Tarsus, which is now just a very small town. At the time, though, it was a rival to Athens and to Alexandria, Egypt. He came from a big city. He was well-cultured. He was one of the thought leaders of the day, I guess you could put it. So as he puts together this lesson, this essay, very compact, he knows exactly, again, what he's doing. So he starts out with a piece of rhetoric, and he asks this rhetorical question, what then should we go on in sin in order that grace might abound? He's referring back to the previous chapter when he talks about the nature of God and that God is full of forgiveness, and forgiveness only comes to us when we need it, presumably then, when we've done something wrong. So it might be logical then to ask, well, the more I sin, the more I get forgiven. Right? That just makes some sort of sense. It goes back to the old story of the mom with her little baby boy, little toddler, who's sitting in his high chair, and he pops the lid off his sippy cup, and oops, there goes the chocolate milk all over the floor, and he's just distraught. He's really, he's just crying, can't believe what he's done. And mom says, no, 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 it's okay, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, and she mops it up, and she says, everything's good as new. And then he says, do it again? That's, you know, that's the kind of thing, you want to get forgiveness, and she sternly tells him, not on your life, buddy. So he uses that opening kind of to get people engaged in the next piece, which is all about baptism. As I read the passage, I wonder how many of you recognize that. Some of these words sound really familiar. It's an interesting thing because we don't take it out of context, but for hundreds of years, and I don't know how many hundreds of years, but we've used a portion of this scripture as the opening litany for funeral services. This is the declaration that we make. And again, I don't know how long it's been. It's been a couple hundred years anyway, that these are the opening sentences as a funeral service takes place. Because we proclaim that God does for us through death what has happened to us in life through our baptisms. I'll circle back on that again. But that's, I think, an important piece because this is a passage that we hear again and again as we celebrate the lives that we live and the lives that have been completed in Christ. As I said, Paul thinks on many levels. So he uses his opening rhetorical device to get us engaged, and then he takes us through... Another cultural exercise, and what he does in the paragraphs, and I divided up the paragraphs into four. Paul's letters is just one big blob of words. I divided this up into three other sections because Paul references the story of the Hebrew people through their captivity in Egypt as they were slaves in Egypt, through their descent and rising up through the Red Sea, in the Exodus, and then how it was that they were given the law after 40 years by Moses. What Paul is going to do in the rest of chapter 6 and 7 and 8, which we won't get to, but what he does is he references these critical pieces of the history of the Hebrew people so that Jews, former Jews who are reading this in the congregation of Rome, get a sense that he understands exactly where they're coming from and what their life is about, and, and what their worldview is. 
So Paul is able to speak on a couple different cultural levels, which I think is kind of helpful and important. One of the funny things that happens, though, in this is that Paul references baptism again and again, but never in any of his letters does he talk about it in a personal way. In some ways, you could say, I could say, that Paul is more Presbyterian than Baptist. He doesn't go back, and I say that because he doesn't go back and look at that day where he was baptized. He doesn't claim that as the change of his life. What happened, and and you only find it in Acts chapter 9, as Luke recounts it later on, it was after Paul was blinded by the light on his way on the Damascus Road, and he's taken in then by Ananias, who he was sent to see. Ananias takes him and wipes the scales off his eyes, whatever those were, and then the next day, he's baptized. There's not a lot of training going on. There's not a lot of catechism that takes place. This is a fairly spontaneous, God-induced action that Paul really never goes back to claim again. Baptism for Paul is something that continues every day in his life, not just something that happened once way back there. It is something that continues throughout, which I think is more of what we Reformed Christians, what we Presbyterians, tend to say. We don't know exactly how to do that so well. We don't claim it in that way and make it part of our life every day, but that's, I think, how it is that he understands what baptism is all about. Now, I said again that this is the passage that we hear at memorial services when we know that that individual, in fact, has been baptized, that that baptism has been made complete by God. And that says something else about baptism and our life in Christ, that we are not always the ones who determine our own actions. We are ones, I think, spirit-led, who feel the call of God and then respond. We are not always the ones who initiate the action, which I think is really important because I think a lot of times when we feel the call to do something good, we think that we're the ones who are the source of that good. And we're really just kind of part of the process. We're the ones who respond. I sent out earlier this past week in my prayer poem notes a little anecdote from a story that I remember after talking with a member in a congregation I served some time ago, just in getting to know an older woman who talked about how it was that she was afraid when her husband went away on business that she was afraid of staying at home. I don't know really what the source of that was, but she said whenever her husband went out of town, she would have to stay with friends, take the kids and stay there, and then she'd feel just fine and all would be well. And it wasn't until after her youngest child died of leukemia that she was no longer afraid. And she says, once you've died, nothing ever again is going to scare you. And she meant she died through her daughter's death. That's a pretty dramatic statement, but I understood exactly what she was saying. There are things that happen to us in life to which we die. There are times in life that we go through things where we think we feel like we've experienced a death, whether that's a death of a spouse, a loved one, a relationship. We go through things where we, parts of us, do die. 
and we feel absolutely lost. There's no way to get it back at all. Part of our faith in Christ, in God in Christ, is that God is, of course, the source of life. And the more we draw ourselves together in community, the more we give ourselves an opportunity to find life, to be resourced in ways that we have no capacity ourselves. We find life in more ways than we can possibly expect. As I spend the week going through all kinds of resources, I ran across this story that I just had to share. It's it's not my own. It's from Will Williman, who is a now retired Methodist bishop. He's one of the great preachers of modern America, had been at Duke University Chapel for a long time, and then returned. I think he's a native Mississippian. Started out down there. He was the bishop of maybe the whole state of Mississippi, and then recently retired. And he shares a story when he was using this passage in a Bible study at a big Methodist conference gathering and raised the rhetorical question, so how many of you have died to new life? And there's just dead silence. And then someone raised their hand and said, well, it was years ago in our church that a black family joined us and we didn't know what to do. And then there's more silence. Then the woman said, and then that family became the most important family in our church. And we love them more than anybody else. And then stories started to flow about how it was that what was unexpected and seemed to be, mm, what are you going to do? Became an incredible blessing. God acts in our lives in ways that we don't know, that we don't expect. But God always invites us to life, to friendship, to hospitality, to joining together and opening ourselves to things that are beyond who we are. God asks us to go beyond ourselves in the way Jesus did, to open ourselves to everyone, to love more than hate, to joy more than fear, to hope more than despair. That's how we live out our baptism each and every day. That's how we open ourselves to God's life in Christ. That is why we celebrate every Sunday. That's why we join together in Jesus' name. Amen.